All right, good morning, guys. Um, if you haven't, or if you couldn't already tell, Ken is not here this morning for whatever reason. He's trusted me enough to let me run this show this morning. But I, <laughs> we shouldn't kid ourselves. Because it's being live streamed, we all know good and well that Ken is watching this right now, no matter where he is. He's on vacation out in Colorado and enjoying the, the weather out there, but I'm almost certain that he is awake and is watching the live stream right now. So even though he's not here, we have to be on our best behavior because literally he's right there. So uh, y'all keep that in mind. Um, today we're going to be in Second Peter chapter 2. Last week, Ken got us through the first three verses, um, but today we're really going it's, to, it's a huge section. We're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 2. And so if y'all want to turn there, I'm going to pray for us before we get started. Father, thank you for today um, and for bringing us here this morning. Lord, I just thank you for uh, who you are uh, and what you've done for us, Lord. I, I, I just pray as we uh, dive into your word today, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts, prepare our minds for what it is that you have to say, um, and, and none of it be my words, but they be your words alone. Lord, I pray that as we, we, we learn about false teaching and the, the destruction that that brings, that you would grow our hearts and our relationship with you, you would uh, just build our knowledge of your, your grace and your truth and the gospel as we learn how to combat these falsehoods. And so, Lord, I pray that um, each and every single one of us here would, would hear what you have to say this morning, and we would leave here this morning um, changed and, and applying this to our lives. So I pray all this in your name. Amen. Okay, so like I said, we're going to be in chapter 2 of Second Peter but what I want to start off by doing is looking at a, a passage that we covered a couple of weeks ago because I think it serves as this key transition from where we were in chapter 1 to really where we are now. So this, this comes in the middle of, of chapter 1, but Peter uses the word remind or some variation of it multiple times through these few verses, and I think that's key for us moving forward. But he says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Now, just a, a quick reminder, this, he's saying these qualities, I want to remind you of these qualities, because if you remember in the beginning of chapter 1, he tells us that we have everything we need for life and godliness. God has given us those things. And then he goes on to list these different qualities. And the, the reason for listing them is because they build on each other. Uh, it's, it's you grow in this, and 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 that's intended for us to just continually grow our relationship with the Lord for the purposes of knowing the truth, knowing the gospel, because when we step in to the next few chapters, we're going to see false teaching is very prevalent, so we need to remember what the truth is. And so that's the qualities that he's talking about there, but he says, as we continue, I think it right as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter here is making it pretty clear that, hey, this, as we've said, is basically his his will. His, his, he, if you don't remember anything, remember this. So he's talking about remembering these qualities, remembering 
everything that you have because of who God is, but then what he wants us to do is really remember who God is. And, and the reason for that, as I said, is because of the false teaching that we're going to encounter as we go through the rest of this chapter. But it, he focuses on the qualities. One of the things you'll see all throughout this chapter today is Peter constantly referencing God's grace, his mercy, his compassion, his glory, his kindness, all of these, these characteristics of the Lord, but he references them while in the same breath talking about false teaching, and I don't think that's a coincidence. I think he does this and is trying to constantly remind us of who the Lord is so that when we see the truth of God's word, we see the truth of the gospel, we can compare that to the false teaching Peter's readers, what it would have been that at that time and for us in our modern context. And so this is really our, our main defense when it comes to false teaching is knowing who God is, knowing the truth about his word. And so Peter is constantly saying, remember, remember God, remember everything that you've been given, remember these things because that is how we, we, we go against these false teachers, these, this false teaching. And so we see this over and over again. At any time in Scripture when uh, an author of a book or a letter is repeating the same thing over and over again, it's obviously important. So we should ask ourselves why. Well, in this context specifically, in 2 Peter, it's pretty clear that false teachers have infiltrated the church. Now, at this point, we're a few decades into the, the church being a thing, and, and now already False teachers are among them. And if you remember back at the end of last week, in the first couple of verses of chapter 2, Peter writes, but false prophets arose among the people just as they will, arose, uh, they will rise among you. That's a reference to Old Testament Israel. And even back then, false teachers were there. And so this is something that was a problem then and is still a problem now. But what's crazy is they're, they know what they're doing, and they're doing it secretly. They're, they're coming in deceptively, and they're bringing in their destruction. The end of the first couple of verses of chapter 2, it says, they're denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. These false teachers are coming in, they're bringing in destructive heresies, but they're doing so secretly. And what that implies is they know what they're doing. What that implies is it it shows that they are aware of the falsehoods, and they're bringing them into the church willingly because they personally gain from it. This is obviously a problem that it was uh, going on in the church then, and Peter spends the whole of this letter talking about it, and then even Jude, all of the book of Jude is about the same thing, and so this was evidently a problem. So it was a problem then, and it is still a problem now. Now, there were some specific false teachings. This isn't by any means an exhaustive list, but the two main false teachings that were prevalent at the time, and I think this is helpful for context, is docetism and Gnosticism. Now, a few weeks ago, Ken printed out a few articles on really diving deep into what these things were, what these beliefs meant, and what I have here is just a very basic 
level, overarching theme, this is what the false teachings were at the time. Now, you can go read those articles or send us an email. We'd love to give you more information on these if you would like. But at a very basic level, the two things that these false teachers were bringing in or, or were denying was Jesus' humanity and Jesus' deity. And really, if you think about it, if, if, God's, or if Jesus isn't fully God and he's not fully human, then what, what, what's, what's the point? Paul even says that. He said, if, if Jesus isn't fully God, if he isn't fully human, then what was the point of the cross? I mean, at that point, you are completely distorting the gospel. You are changing the gospel. You're taking away from. You're adding to. And at that point, the gospel no longer is the gospel. And so that's why it's so important for us to know what truth is, because when things like this get a foothold, all it does is lead to destruction. But then I want to kind of turn this to a modern context. So we, we see how Peter is talking about the, the false teachings of his day. What would that be for us today? Because the truth is still um, the truth, is still the truth. but it, if we're just being honest, false teaching was then and false teaching is now. This is a problem. As long as we live in a broken world, it's going to be here. So how do we identify it? What, what is it? Well, I think for us... The main one that comes to mind is this idea of the health and wealth gospel, or probably better known as the prosperity gospel. And at a very basic level, it's this idea that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy, and if you just had enough faith, then you would be blessed by God with health and wealth. Now, don't get me wrong. Wanting health, wanting to be blessed by God, those things are not bad, but when those things become more important than the gospel, when those things become the only reason we go to the Lord, then that's when it's a problem. We, we don't have, uh, or there, there are still false teachings around today that would deny the deity and the humanity of Jesus, but I think this is one, especially in the West, that is very prevalent because it's, it's this idea of, of having you know, your best life now. There was a, a song that I listened to over and over again in preparation for this lesson. I thought about playing it this morning, but uh, I just figured it would take too much time. But it, it addresses the prosperity gospel, and it addresses this as false teaching and calls it what it is. And one of the thing, or one of the lines in it is um, speaking to this idea of just wanting wealth. This is if you if you come to Jesus for money. He's not your God, money is. And I think that's what this idea of the prosperity gospel does, is that it flips on its head who God is because it makes you come to God for these things rather than coming to God for glorifying him, coming to the Lord for worshiping him. And really this idea of the, the prosperity gospel is these false teachers are preying on our sinful desires, our sinful desires of greed, uh, or this this. That is what they, they prey on, and they know what they're doing, as we see at the beginning of chapter 2. But at a basic level, I think as we move forward, this is one of the main, I think, false teachings that is prevalent today. And the main reason that it, it, it's false is because it places things in front of the gospel. Things become more important. Health and wealth become more important than the gospel. And so... That, I think, is how this applies to us as we move forward in this context. And kind of where I'm going to go with this lesson today is we talk about how does this apply to us 
right now? How, how does what Peter is saying in the first century apply to us in the 21st century? But I want to, before going into verse 4, which is where we start today, I just want to point out one more thing in verse 3. It says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Talking about this idea of the, the danger of false teaching, are there false teachers who truly believe what they're teaching? I'm sure. But if you get down to the root of it, Peter is saying here that most of false teaching is they're exploiting you out of their own greed. They are personally, false teachers are personally gaining from whatever heresy it is they're saying, and they know that if they can get you to fall into it, they can exploit you out of their greed. And so that, that is the warning that we're given. And I think this is something that we can't take lightly because if we just get to the basic level of it, false teaching is the opposite of the gospel. It's, it's adding to, subtracting from the gospel. It's not the truth. And at the end of the day, that's damning. At the end of the day, that's walking down a path of destruction. And so what are we going to do about it? How do we identify it? What, what are the warnings? What are the reminders that we can have to make sure that this doesn't happen? So let's pick up in verse 4. Uh, this is where we're starting today. Verse 4, chapter 2, it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. In verse seven, if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now I know that that's a lot. And I, I want to break this down. It, it seems kind of confusing. You, you go from Peter at the beginning of chapter 2 is talking about, okay, false teachers are among you. And then he gets into all of these examples. And it's very easy for us to think, Peter, what in the world? You, you went from talking about false teachers, now you're talking about fallen angels, you're talking about the flood, you're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. What is going on? But I think that Peter is trying to make a point. And I think if we get bogged down by the specific examples, or the specifics of the examples, then we miss the point entirely. Peter has spent the, the entirety of his letter up to this point talking about the dangers of false teachers and then he jumps into this, and if you think about it, all of these examples, whether it's fallen angels, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, we associate all of those things with bad situations, right? I mean, the, all of them end in some form of destruction. And I think Peter uses those as examples to show us this is what's going to happen to false teaching. This is what's going to happen to false teachers. The, 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 the scenarios that you imagine here is what is ultimately going to be the end for false teachers. And so I think he gives these three examples of how God deals with those sinning against him, and ultimately that's what false teaching is. But like I said, don't get bogged down with the specifics of the examples. I, if you want to know more about each one, you can send me an email. I'd love to talk more about it because some of them, you just have a ton of questions about. He, 
He goes on to tell, or tell us that Lot, he calls Lot a righteous man. And I think a lot of times in the Old Testament, we think Lot makes a ton of mistakes. But there's just so much there. But like I said, don't get bogged down in the examples, but ask, why did Peter choose these specifically? Like I said, I think he's equating false teaching with the destruction of the fallen angels, the flood, and Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what's important here is it, it builds on and proves the point that Peter is going to continue to make for, throughout the rest of chapter 2 is that God's going to destroy the wicked. God will destroy the wicked, and he's going to deliver the righteous. We see him do that with Lot. He calls Lot a righteous man. He delivers him out of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see him do that with Noah and his family as the flood comes. We see these, this specific um, claim happening in all of these examples, that God will destroy the wicked and deliver the righteous. And I think that goes back to everything that we've talked about for the past year. Is if we live with the end in mind, we know that even now, if we, experiencing, if we experience tough times, if we experience persecution, if we see these false teachings in the world and we wonder, why is this happening? We ultimately know that there will be an end to that. God will bring an end to that, and there will be a day when none of that is there. So ultimately, God will destroy the wicked and deliver the righteous. And I think that's the point that Peter is wanting us to understand. So he picks it up in verse 9. He says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And this echoes everything that he said to this point. Verse 3, it says, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This isn't something that God is just letting, you know, willingly thinking, all right, I can't control anything here. But no, God will ultimately bring destruction to the wicked. And like I said, Jude, the whole book of Jude is basically, you know, 2 Peter 2.0. But he says something along the same lines. He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God and sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in 2 Peter chapter 2, in the first 10 verses, Peter uses the word destruction or destroy five times to make the point that this is the ultimate end of false teaching. And that's what we can look forward to. But while we live in the here and now, how do we deal with it? What, what do we do? Because we know that false teaching is here, and through all this we know that God will ultimately bring an end to it. But with these, these uh, examples that we've been given, really what comes from this, or what I've kind of gotten from this is a warning and a reminder. We, we see a warning from Peter and we see a reminder from Peter when it comes to false teaching. The warning is just beware that false teachers are here and they bring heresy into the church. The warning that is so important here is that we're dealing with eternal implications. Because like I said earlier, if people follow these false teachings, they're following something that isn't the gospel. They're following something that isn't the truth. And that only leads to destruction. That doesn't lead to the Lord. Look at what Peter's going to say in verses 11 and 12. I included the beginning of verse 10 just to show you 
the, 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 the characteristics of these false teachers as they are in the church. It says they are bold and they willfully bring in these false teachings. They're like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed because we know their ultimate uh, destruction is imminent, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, and they will also be destroyed in their destruction. They're, they're, they're blaspheming about things that they don't know about. They're talking about things that they don't know about, they don't understand, and yet people are following them. And we've seen this at the beginning of chapter 2. It says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. There, I think this, this verse is indicative of the teaching that was being taught then. It's they're denying the master who bought them. They're denying the Lord. And we'll see here in a minute, they're blaspheming God's glory. They're going as far as doing that. They're, they're bold in this. They're, they're willingly doing this. They're arrogant in doing this. And they're bringing people with them. And like I said, that is something that is incredibly damning. And those of us who know the truth of the gospel have the responsibility to point others to truth. Again, in Jude, chapter, or in Jude verse 10, it says, But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And so there is no truth to what they're saying. They're, they're talking about things that they don't understand. They're, they're blaspheming God's glory, and they're leading people down a path of destruction. And so what's the reminder? These things are, are, are it, it's terrible to know that this is out there and that people are following these things. People are following something that's other than the gospel. But I think the reminder that we can find comfort in from Peter especially in this chapter that seems kind of discouraging, the, the, the reminder that can, can give us encouragement is that even in the presence of false teaching, that God is good, God sits on his throne, and God is in control. In the midst of all of this, God is in control. If you look back at the uh, beginning of chapter 1, I love how Peter starts this letter as encouraging his readers as he's about to get into the idea of false teaching, but he reminds us that, I mean, you have everything that you need. He says, his divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is who we are and what we have in Christ. And so even in a world that is fallen, even in a world, world where false teaching is out there, and even in our churches today, we, if we are in Christ, know that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. God has given us everything that we need. So moving forward, that is how we can point others to the truth of the gospel. So remember that we have all that we need for life and godliness. And I love how Peter really creates this, this two contrasting visions. He says, we've got all that we need for life and godliness. And the opposite of that is false teachers are giving everything that you need for death and destruction. 
And so you can see the two ends of the spectrum here, and there's really no middle ground. It's, it's life and godliness or death and destruction. And that is, there's an urgency there, and you see that in the way that Peter writes. There's an urgency there for us to point people to that truth. But look at how Peter ends this, his letter. He says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Remembering who God is, remembering the things that God has done, growing in our knowledge of him, man, that's our defense against false teaching. Because if we know who God is, we can identify truth and identify false or falsehoods. We know what the truth of the gospel is compared to the false teachings of our day. So Peter tells us to beware of false teachers among us. But then what he's going to do is he's going to spend the rest of this chapter showing us how we can identify false teaching. And I think this is something that is helpful because it gets down to the heart level. Now the way that I've structured this next section is from a quote that I found in a commentary that I was reading for for this, uh, this passage. But it says, false teachers can be recognized by what he says with his mouth, sees with his eyes, and desires in his heart. And so the way that I've broken this down is we can identify false teachers based on what Peter's saying here from what they say, what they do, and what's the desires of their heart. What do they desire? And that's pretty indicative of what they believe and what they're teaching. And so we're going to go back to verse 10. And again, this is the bold and willful. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. So what, we can identify false teachers by what they say. Now, what's important with this is remembering we have to know the truth of the gospel to, to understand that somebody is preaching something false. But what's interesting here is in chapter 2, um, verse 10, Peter says, these false teachers in their context in, in the first century were blaspheming the glorious ones. And the word glory, or the phrase glorious ones is translated doxa, which at a, a very literal level, means the glory of God or that which belongs to God. So when you translate that out, you see that these false teachers were blaspheming God's glory. I don't know if it gets any more serious than that. These people were, were talking against, preaching against, teaching something that was going against the glory of God. And th- this is what they're teaching. And I, I, you look at somebody saying something like that, and you can obviously tell that, man, if I know what the truth about the gospel is, that's not that. And so that's how we were able to identify these things. But evidently, these people in the first, uh, first century were blaspheming God's glory, teaching against uh, the glory of God, which is evidently false. But this is a quote that I found that um, kind of speaks to what Peter's getting at here. It says, false preachers evidence a certain disdain for those who obediently carry out God's word. They repudiate anything glorious and good, that's blaspheming God's glory, 
And in doing so, their voices become nothing more than the grunts of an animal merely caught to be destroyed. Irrational creatures of instinct, these creatures are difficult, if not impossible, to reason with. I don't think it's a coincidence that Peter compares these people to irrational animals. He's basically saying their words are just grunts of animals. They're worthless. They don't mean anything. But people are still following them. So we can see that people are following this false teaching, that these, these things that they're saying are, are not true. But with what we see in chapter 2, what's evidence, uh, or the evidence that we see for these, these people in the first century was they had this disregard for authority. And really, if you get, if you get down to it, uh, teaching something other than the gospel, teaching something that isn't the truth of God's word, is getting rid of the authority of God. Because we look at this book as God's word to us. It's the authority in our life. And if we are teaching something contrary to it, then you are disregarding the authority that it has over you. The, the, the authority that God's word has over our life. And to make matters worse, Peter says they're bold. And they're willfully doing this. And, and they're leading people astray. So that's the first thing is we can identify false teachers by what they say. And the second is we can identify them by what they do. So picking up in verse 13, it says, They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. We can see, based on what these people are, are doing, their actions aren't following after the Lord. Their actions don't show a changed heart. They're, obviously, these people in the first century were following after what they thought would make them happy and their, their pleasure. That was the most important to them. But I think this statement is true. Following the eyes of somebody can show you the hidden desires of their heart. Now, as we go on into these in these verses, these false teachers from First Peter or from Second Peter were really not trying to hide it at all. They they said that it says that they reveled in the daytime, and I don't think that that is just a a, a play on words or anything. I think Peter is trying to get us to understand when you think about sin, a lot of times sin is is mentioned. In darkness, we sin in the darkness because if you think about light and dark, you can't see anything in the dark. Nobody sees what's happening. But these people are reveling in their their sinful desires in the daytime. They are openly sinning. They are openly living their lives like this that are contrary to what the gospel says, to what what God's word says. And they have these people specifically had hearts for adultery, so they were obviously living some kind of promiscuous lives. But I think at the root of it, what had happened is they had bought into this lie that their happiness, their, their own desires, their, their, their sinful desires, their pleasure mattered most. That, that is what God wanted. You know, God wants you to be happy, so whatever makes you happy, do that. We can see where this isn't true. And we can see where that's destructive because it leads you down a path that only gets worse and worse and worse. And what it does is it elevates self and it gets rid of God in, in any standing that he has in your life because your own personal happiness becomes more important than glorifying the Lord. 
And then what's worse is it says they are enticing unsteady souls, unsteady people to join them. They're looking for people around them and they're trying to think, okay, how can I get some, how can I gain personally from getting somebody to follow me in this? They, they, they are looking, Peter says, for unsteady souls. They're not looking for the person who is strong in the, in the word of God. They're not looking for somebody who is a strong believer. They're looking for those who don't know better and they're looking to bring them along in their path to destruction. You see, false teachers feed on people's fleshly desires with no regard for sin. What they're doing is wrong, and they're willingly bringing people along with them. And like I've said before, this, this is damning. This is a path that does not lead to heaven. This is a path that only leads in destruction. So you can see... It. You can see the urgency of Peter in this letter. All through chapter 2, you start to think, like, gosh, this is so discouraging. But I think what Peter's trying to get at is there is an urgency here. There are people who are following false teaching that are going to end their lives in destruction. We know the truth. We have the truth of the gospel. We have the responsibility to share that with them. We have to point others to God's word. There are eternal implications when we talk about false teaching, it's not just pointing out something that's false. It's, man, if people are following that, they are not following after God. So we, we can identify false teachers by what they say, what they do. And at the, at the very end of it all, we can identify false teachers by what they desire. And picking up in verse 14, it says, They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now again, Peter's bringing in a story that doesn't make a ton of sense, and we'll get into that in a second, but we can identify false teachers by what they desire. So the root of all of this can be found in the heart. And multiple times in this chapter, Peter has identified false, teacher as, false teachers as greedy people, whether that's money, whether that's power. It's, it's gaining from wrongdoing, as he, he says right here, point blank. They are gaining from wrongdoing because they are leading people away from the gospel. You see, I think this idea of greed typically is associated with money, and rightfully so, but I think as we talk about the prosperity gospel, this is something that we're more accustomed to seeing today, this idea of people gaining um, from enticing people to believe in something that isn't true. But you see, the reason these heresies, the, oh, I don't know how that happened. Uh, the reason these heresies gain a, a footing, the reason these heresies stay around is because the people teaching them personally gain from it. You see, they're, they're, they're living their best life now. They're the ones that are gaining from getting people to follow after this. And so there's no glorifying God here. It's, it's I'm gaining from this in this moment. So I want to continue to, to teach this because, man, look at the life that I get to live. Look at the things that I get to have. These are I desire this greed. That is why these teachings, it's, it's feeding on sin. 
And that is why these things maintain a foothold. It's because the people spouting them are personally gaining from it. So I want to give in, get into the example of Balaam really quick because it seems like all throughout this chapter, Peter's just throwing in random stories from the Old Testament and expecting us to understand what they mean. And so here, what he's doing is he's showing us an example of a prophet, not a prophet of God, but a prophet in the Old Testament who falls into all three camps of you know, speaking falsehood. You can see with uh, his actions, the things that he does, that he's obviously not following after the Lord. And then ultimately his heart is set on um, God-forsaken ways. And so we see all these things happen. Basically, I don't have time to go into the entire story, but as God's people are wandering through the wilderness, they get close to Moab, and the king of Moab, as a guy named Balak, gets scared. He doesn't want God's people, who are massive and are taking over city after city, to get anywhere near him. And so what Balak does is he sends Balaam, this prophet, to go curse God's people. And Balaam says, okay, I'll, I'll go do it. And on his way to go curse God's people, God speaks to him and says, you're not going to do that. You're actually going to bless my people. I will not let you curse them. And so Balaam ends up blessing God's people. And so you can imagine that the king of Moab would be furious about that. He just sent this guy to go do this, and he does the opposite. Well, he comes back, and the king offers Balaam all the riches in the world. Like he offers him a ton of money and says, if you will go curse God's people, these people, this is what you have coming for you. And so Balaam again says, okay, you know, for all of this money, I will go do that. And he goes, and he tries to curse them again, but God again stops him and says, no, you're going to bless these people. Then he finally gets to this point, Balaam, this, this prophet, comes back to the king and says, you could give me all the money in the world, all the silver and gold in this palace, but I'm not going to curse these people. I, I, I will I can only do what God tells me to do. So you can imagine that ultimately this, this king is furious. Well, he sends him out again to go try to curse, uh, the, uh, go curse God's people. And it's this crazy story where a donkey speaks to him and says, you're not going to do this. And then an angel of the Lord appears. And so all these crazy things happen. And he ends up blessing God's people seven times. So God, or, or this king of, of Moab is obviously going to be furious. And then finally, what ends up happening is, is, is Balaam says, okay, I can't curse these people. I obviously can only bless them. But here's how you can bring their destruction. If you intermarry with them, they will begin to worship your gods. They will stop following their god. They will idolize these other gods. And, and that will be the destruction of these people. And so we see Balaam, this idea that God tells him the truth. He knows what the truth is, yet he finds a way around it and spouts something that's false. And I think that is the point that Peter's trying to get us to see, is that is what false teaching is. It's, man, these people know the truth. This is the danger of it. They know what the truth is, and look at what they're doing. They're distorting it for their personal gain here. And I think the, the adjectives that Peter uses to describe false teachers applies to Balaam here. He says, uh, I think he was bold and he was willful, and willful in his effort to secretly bring in destructiveness to God's people. And with that in mind, Peter goes on to describe these people who know the truth, yet are spouting falsehood. He says they, 
These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. So you, you're, you're seeing how Peter feels about false teachers right now. He, he says, the, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for them. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So you see, at the end of the day, false teachers overpromise and underdeliver. That that is the ultimate end of what they're teaching. And they sound great. We've talked about you know, false teachers are these very charismatic people. Everybody seems to like them. They're, they're very personable. They're, they're fun to be around. They, they sound exciting. And they come with lofty speech. But they're only leading people astray in that. And in fact, Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When he says, when I came to you, brothers, did not, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Because, guys, the truth of the gospel needs nothing more than the truth of the gospel. It doesn't need these lofty words, this, this charismatic style to, for it to hang on because it speaks for itself. Look at what Ken says about this passage, about really uh, these false teachers using the examples that Peter did. He says, like a waterless spring, they can only offer the hope of refreshment, but they lack the means to make it happen. Like a reef lying just below the surface of the water, they are a hidden danger waiting to wreak havoc on any and all who come into contact with them. You see, false teachers promise health, wealth, freedom. That's in our modern context today. Because we know that those things are only temporal. Those things will not last forever and they can't go with you into the next life. These things will never give us true freedom. True freedom is only found in Christ. Those of us who are in Christ experience that true freedom. I think a a phrase that I've seen over and over again as I've gone through this passage is false teachers, specifically today, elevate the gifts over the giver. They elevate the the things of this world over the good things. Like the, The idea of health and blessing are not bad things, but when we elevate those over the one who gives those things, that's when you've got a problem. And that's what these false teachings are doing. So in verse 20 it says, For if, and this is the, this is the dangers of falling into false teaching, it says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then they are again entangled in them and, over, and overcome, The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. You see, the danger of false teaching is you've got people who know the truth of God's word and are rejecting it. And that's what Peter's saying here. Peter is saying it's better... (laughs) It's better to have never known the gospel than to know the gospel and reject it. Now, obviously, we want to share the gospel with as many people as we can, but here he's saying it would be better to have never heard it than to know the gospel and reject it. And we see a lot of this 
uh, or we really see this idea spoken by Jesus in, in Luke chapter 12. It says, And in in that uh, servant who knew his master's will, knew what his master wanted, but did not get ready or act according to his will, he will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, something wrong, he will receive a light beating. Everyone, and this is the key, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. I think simply put, with great with greater knowledge comes greater responsibility. You and I know the gospel, and now you and I have the responsibility to share that with others, especially knowing there is false teaching in this world today that is leading people astray. And this idea of Peter's feelings towards false teachers is going to just be taken even further as he rounds out this chapter. He says in verse 22, the dog returned to its own, returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. You see, I don't think it's um, coincidence that these are the two things that Peter uses, because people in the first century would have understood dogs and pigs to be unclean animals. They weren't like us. They didn't just have dogs as pets back then. These, these animals were considered unclean, and this is what Peter is comparing false teachers to. And we see in their act, we see the DNA of these animals in their actions, returning to their own vomit, returning to the, the wall in the, in the mire. I think the same is true for false teachers, and that's the point that Peter is trying to make. So how does this apply to us today? We see the specifics of what Peter is saying for his context and his time, but what is the truth in this passage that applies to us today? Well, the only protection against false teaching that we have is growing in the knowledge of Christ. And that's something that Peter repeats over and over and over again, to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, because in doing so, we understand the truth of the gospel and can identify falsehood. He ends uh, this whole letter by saying, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when we continually grow in the knowledge of Jesus, we are equipped to identify what isn't truth. And this is the charge that you and I have today. And the thing is, is it's not just for us. It's, it's for those who do not know better. Because like we've seen before, and what Peter says is false teachers are trying to entice unsteady people, people who don't know better. We are equipped with the gospel. We are equipped with the truth of God's word to identify these falsehoods, but also have the responsibility of pointing others to him. So here are your questions for today. The first one says, what steps should we take in order to make sure false teaching does not gain a foothold in our churches? Second, how should you address a friend or a family member who listens to false teaching? What are the steps you should take? What, how should you engage in that conversation? And then lastly, why does Peter constantly remind us of who God is when speaking about false teaching, and how does that help us today? Y'all pray with me. Father, thank you for today and for bringing us here and for just giving us the freedom to um, study your word freely. God, I pray that as we, we see and hear the warnings of 
looking out for false teachers, be, being aware that there are false teachers around us in the world today. God, I pray that you would just continue to grow our relationship with you so that we would grow in the truth of your word. And that would be something that is, um, that is stuck to our hearts, something that is, is constantly on our minds as we seek to point others to you, but also have that as a defense to identify falsehood. Father, I pray that you would be with us at our tables this morning and that as we leave this room today, God, that your word would, would convict us and that your word would change our lives. It's your name I pray. Amen.